Brad, you ever make watermelon teeth? I'm sorry, what? You know, watermelon teeth. You you, you take the watermelon <laughs> rind. Can I, have you, can I? Yeah. Can I stop for a minute and, and ask? Maybe the audience can help crowdsource some data. How many of these cold opens begin with some level of incredulous on my part? It's probably 50%, I would guess, because either incredulous on, on your part or like surprised and excited on my part, right? Some variation of I'm sorry, what? I'm sorry, what? No, watermelon teeth. So watermelon teeth, you you take a, the rind and you slice a little thin strip off about, you know, about the size of your front teeth. And then you leave the pink bit uh, intact and you cut triangles out of the out of the, the green end. And then you jam it up between your gums and your lip. And when you smile, it looks like you have horrible green and green and white pointy monster teeth. You, you had too much time or not enough to occupy you on the farm didn't you we look you have to make your own fun brad uh-huh. we used to well okay so we did this this was a family outing at the at my parents side of the family my dad's side of the family and whenever we all got together as a family there was almost always a watermelon there and uh someone would get down the get the knife out and carve out watermelon teeth for the kids and also the adults at the end of the meal usually I mean, in fairness, usually those those uh, those involved like a bushel of crabs on a picnic table someplace and like some some corn that had been wrapped up in aluminum foil and chucked on the grill and a lot of beer, like a really a lot of beer. So I was going to ask if the adults were fairly inebriated at this point. Also, was this a like of what a Virginia? Surely you did not have crabs in Tennessee. We crabs in Tennessee were a rare treat. We would often, if we went, one of my dad's friends lived in North Carolina. We'd go get, he, he, he would get crabs when we came to visit them often. If it was the right time of year. Um, but usually crabs were a Virginia thing. And when I think back on it now and what the water quality in the Chesapeake Bay was probably like when I was a kid, I, like it's amazing my liver and like, I don't have, I'm not riddled with horrible diseases as a result of eating crabs from the Chesapeake Bay. I will do the look you're in, you're in luck. The liver is a regenerative organ. That's true. But, um, but yeah, so we'd make watermelon teeth. We, we had a family reunion where somebody came down. Uh, well, the whole family came down to our house in Tennessee and they brought a bunch of crabs. We did the normal thing. And then we all made, <laughs> we all made, uh, uh, watermelon teeth and we took a family portrait. Like the, fa- the family reunion picture was with everybody with watermelon teeth. And we did the whole thing with like the, you know, the, the Olympus camera with the three second timer that clicked down and you put on the picnic table or a tripod or whatever. And everybody got in the picture. We took it to the, to the photo place and you know, kids these days don't remember this, but it used to be when you took your photos, you knew that the person was going to look at them because they had to look at them to develop them. And they'd always have Mm -hmm. something like nice to say about them. They're like, Oh, it looks like you had a really nice vacation. I'm, I'm so jealous. I can't believe you went to, you know, Carowinds or whatever. And, um, they looked at it like, man, that, that family picture is fantastic. You guys look so good. Everybody looks so happy and like having such a big time, just beautiful smiles all around. And uh, we all had watermelon teeth in the picture and she didn't notice kids these days don't understand. You couldn't just take illicit photos of whatever back then. Well, you could, but you had to, you had to, be, you had to know somebody or be able to develop your own business. If you were going to take naughty fight pictures, you, you had to, <laughs> you had to be okay with at least one person seeing those. Things. Also, Every single one hour photo place had a folder full of keepers that they, that they just made a dupe of what? Oh yeah. Oh man. It sounds like you have inside knowledge. I'm I've just, it's just what I've been told, Brad. Just what I've been told. 
Welcome to Brad and Will Made a Tech Pod. I'm Will. I'm Brad. Hello. Have you ever done the cut a hole in the watermelon and upend the bottle of vodka in it or maybe Everclear if you've really got a death wish? Yeah, the Everclear is what we did because we, we, we were bad at math. And also we had a smaller watermelon that I think you probably wanted for a pint of that stuff. Ooh. It was a bad time, Brad. Ooh, that sounds terrible. I don't think I've ever actually done that. One of the, uh, one of the all-time bangers was on my grandmother's birthday when she turned, I think, 88. We were at the lake on a boat. And yeah, you know, people on on the lake are neighborly, and and one of our one of our neighbors at the boathouse next to us, boathouse in Tennessee is like a tenement floating on big styrofoam blocks. <laughs> okay. And um, one of our neighbors was like, "Oh, it's your birthday, Nora! Come on over. We 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 got Jello shooters." So my eighty eight year old British grandmother was standing on the dock doing Jello shooters. That's three o'clock dude, in the I afternoon. Can- I can't process anything you were saying because I did not grow up in a drinking family. Oh, was it like, like I grew up in a relatively religious family, depending on, but nobody drank at family functions for the entirety of my childhood. Well, okay. So I have come from a long line of mostly functional alcoholics. Uh, it's pr- okay. mostly why I don't drink. Like I'll have a beer occasionally, but I don't, I don't, I don't drink a lot anymore. Um, the, my grandmother's idea of a drink was to get, you know, like a tablespoon of rum in a 12 ounce Coke with a little bit of lime. That was, that was what she liked to drink. Okay. Um, Sensible. She was from the not drinking side of the, my mom's side of the family. They they were like, I'll have a cocktail. And it was very, always something with a splash in it. Right. The, uh, the other side of the family, all, all almost, almost all have drinking problems. So, you know, it's pros and cons. I'll take the not drinking. It turns out. Yes. Speaking of pros and cons. Yeah. Putting um, an automated system in charge of global nuclear annihilation. Well, look, let me, there's a human element, right? That you got to cut out of the loop because they're unpredictable computers. That's right. Uh Perfectly predictable, Brad. Nothing could go wrong. Definitely. Well, it's true that they only do what you tell them. You just got to be really sure what it is you're telling them to do. That, that is true. Uh, Brad, of course, is alluding to the seminal 1983 classic starring Matthew Broderick and Ali Sheedy war games yeah. uh, made made for 16 million dollars brad we could kickstarter that today it's only been about thir- not even 13 hours since i finished this movie for the first time i can't believe you've never seen this before also that's there's a lot of movies i have never that's seen true you 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 game spot guys were too busy playing video games to watch movies see magazine yes. people we had a lot of time to go to the movies it turns out yes we were quite busy trying to get through games also prior to working in video games i have still spent most of my time trying to play games or be on computers so you you, uh, to the exclusion of movies what you're saying is like you would have been sitting in your bedroom uh, and you would have heard about a new upcoming title like a final fantasy 7 or something like that you would have Mm -hmm. you would have uh, started calling phone numbers in japan Yes. To try to hack into the system and get access to the game before anybody else uh, did or it was officially released. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. I, I'm going to say real quick yeah. before we get into this, we've we've only done three movies, right? We've, Hackers, Sneakers, and this. As far as I'm concerned, they're the three greatest <laughs> computer hacking movies of all time. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say unequivocally the best of the three. Oh, I think, or, I think, I think. At least my favorite of the three. So. This one has the benefit of being first, right? This is this is the first computer movie. I mean, people saw Tron, but it, Tron's a fantasy. It's not really about computers. 
Um, th- this is a real like this. First off, this is a movie ass movie. This is like a Cold War thriller kind kind of like like there's intrigue, there's romance, there's there's Matthew Broderick looking very young despite the fact that he was twenty one. Um, it is it is uh, it is. And also, I think this movie's probably held up as well, b- better than any of the other movies we've watched on this podcast so far. That, that's kind of what I mean. This is like the most successful and well-constructed major motion picture film, you know? Ye- like, Hackers, like, look, Hackers is Hackers, okay? Hackers and like, sneakers, brilliant art, Brad, and I'll hear nothing else. Sneakers is good, but a little goofy in spots. But, like, this, this movie just works. And it's funny because the themes are as relevant today as they were maybe more so than they were 40 years ago, I think. Like, if you think about the idea of replacing humans with computers and mm-hmm. the the current dialogue and the fact that there's right now a SAG after a strike and a Writers Guild strike that is basically like one of the core things that they're striking because is they don't want the, the movie studios to be able to replace the, their roles with AI generated uh, analogs. Like we're, we're having the same conversations now that we were 40 years ago. Yeah. I mean, to, to expand, it's the idea of replacing people with computers that learn through iteration. Yeah. Yeah. Which like premise of this movie just gets less outlandish the longer, the farther away from it we get. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's remarkable. Um, I, I think, uh, so worth mentioning scored three Oscar nominations for cinematography screen, uh, best screenplay and sound. It didn't want win any of them. I think not winning the screenplay is, is a real crime. And the cinematography's I don't, I don't remember one cinematography in 83 scored the coveted four stars from Roger Ebert. Yeah. The interesting thing he says uh, that happened in this movie is it's a movie about avoiding nuclear annihilation in the early eighties at the end of the movie. We're going to, by the way, from this point on spoilers, I guess we're going to just talk about the whole movie. It's probably, yeah, there's probably not much point in listening to this. If you haven't already already seen war games, a 40 year old movie. So I I don't want to hear any complaining about spoilers in the comments. Y'all, um, the end of the movie, the computer famously says the only way to win the game is to not play at all. Right. Talking about yeah. global thermonuclear war. That's that's like the one thing I wish I hadn't known about going into this. But go on. Well, audiences support reportedly applauded. Like when I was looking up newspaper clippings and reviews of the movie, people were like applauding and cheering at the end yeah, of the it's, movie. It's like an amazing and like, you know, it's it's cliche or trite these days, but like it's a pretty powerful observation for a computer to make about global destruction. Well, and, and it's a power like it's it's a it's hard to remember now because we were both probably too young to really be aware before there wasn't before I mean, being real, still a constant threat of nuclear war because we've made choices as species. Yeah. However, it it, it was more impending, I think, for the people who were you know, teenagers and older in, in the early eighties than we really can appreciate. Um, anyway, uh, I, I, I have the last time I watched this movie, I think was in either 2008 or 2013 for the 25th or 30th anniversary. I can't remember. I looked for old podcast notes and couldn't actually find them. Um, because I thought we talked about it and this is only a test, but I don't believe we did. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a remarkable, like from the very beginning that the, the cold open, of like the silo, um, the missile silo, the establishing shots of the missile silo where the guy, they just drive out to a house and there's a secret door and elevators and all sorts of stuff where they're going down into the, 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 the standoff crew is going down into the, into the, into the silo and gets locked into the bunker. And, and then there's a, a false alarm, 
for all, you know, for all, or I guess it's a simulation at that point. It's a, it's a, it's a test. Yeah. yeah. I, I was shocked how well this opening scene works and also how maybe not quite consistent in tone it is with the rest of like the rest of the movie is a bit lighthearted. You know, it's a bit of a romp or especially in light of the subject matter. But this, this opening scene is like tense as hell. It's like Mm -hmm. taut and like gripping, you know, I was sort of on the edge of my seat watching this. It's all executed so well. Also this, I don't know how realistic this, this base is at the beginning, but everything about the trappings of it is amazing from like the secret entrance in the little house to the gigantic, you know, they're not pressurized doors, but they go through this like almost airlock looking thing. And well, so, so like they hid the entrances to the missile silos for a long time. I don't know if they still were oh, yeah, in the eighties. Yeah. I, I believe that actually happened. I think they just, they just represent it really well with this, this, you know, this uh, two way mirror and stuff. So, so one of the interesting things about this, and I don't know if this is one of the scenes that was fresh hot, but they changed directors uh, after the, after like the, uh, just a few days of work. Uh, the first, the first director was, I think, Martin Brest. I can't remember. It's something Brest. I didn't, uh, yeah, Martin Brest. Um, and he shot it. They, they fired him because it was too dark. It was too serious. Like he had shot, I know he had shot the hacking scene, the first one with Ali Sheedy and Matthew Broderick in his bedroom when they're changing grades. And uh, the person who ended up coming in to, uh, to, to, to do the rest of the movie, um, uh, John, John Badham, John Badham. Thank you. Was what looked at that scene was like, wait, this there's something not right. Cause it, cause it was shot like it was a taut cold war thriller, right? It was yeah. taught like it was really super serious and they were like doing scary criminal stuff. And he came back and reshot it as like a, as like they were kids having fun and it makes the whole thing work because like yeah. they're clearly just playing with a computer, right? It's a new thing to both of them. Well, it's not a new thing to Matthew product, but it's a new thing to, or David Lightman, the character, but it's a new thing to Ali Sheedy. And she's like, wait, you can do that. And, he, and he's just showing off like he's a boy trying to impress a girl who's hanging out in his bedroom. And she's the first person probably who's shown interest in what he likes to do outside of like his nerd friends who are at the university. And, and then like that makes the, that really makes the whole thing work. The fascinating thing that I learned reading about this for this this outing is that the script originally started as nothing to do with computers at all. Like the original pitch was, it was about Stephen Hawking. Um, that blew my mind because like you, 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 even, even I not having seen war games like for decades have known this as the hacking movie, right? It's like, it's the movie where Matthew Broderick hacks into a nuclear system. It's about hacking, right? But it sounds like, it sounds like it was the scientist aspect. It was actually the Stephen Falcon character. You mean Stephen Hawking? Yes. <laughs> was, was apparently the actual genesis of the story was about a, scientist and a protege and and that whole thing. Well, yeah, the, the idea was somebody saw, somebody saw the story, somebody learned the story of Stephen Hawking, right? One of the great minds of our time. And they were, they, the idea that he could solve the universal field theory, but be so locked in because of ALS that he couldn't share that information with anyone was, was terrifying to them. And they wanted, they wanted to do a story about a young kind of rebellious outsider who was, you know, typical Hollywood stuff. Who, who was misunderstood and was, was not living up to his potential because his environment couldn't, couldn't, wasn't, wasn't supporting it. Right. It's like extremely the back to the future setup as well. Like who knows how many other movies. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then they needed a way to get the, the kid from the suburbs to connect with the brilliant astrophysicist. And they were like, Oh, they talked to a bunch of people. They went to the Stanford, to, to the Stanford research Institute and, and, 
they were like, what about computers? They're like, there's all these kids, they're doing computer stuff. They're, you know, connecting to systems. They're doing all this, this like kind of, kind of cutting edge computer stuff. Maybe that's the way to do it. And that was, that was the genesis for the, the entire hacking, like the thing that the movie's famous for now. Just, yeah. Like they, they, they kind of, they kind of fell backwards into both the hacking and the nuclear war aspects of this. Yeah. And, and, and so just to be clear, like we, we, Hackers is foundational for people who are our age, I think, maybe a little bit younger even. Um, sneakers is, is fun, but but kind of was telling people about something they already knew. This this movie had to introduce the idea that computers could talk to each other. It had to introduce the idea that like that computers are how computers work, and it did it in a reasonable way and without a whole lot of like unfortunate exposition. It 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 really just jumps in and like they they like literally people call war dialing or war driving when you're looking for Wi-Fi access points. And like, that's a reference to war games that blew my mind. Like, first of all, I, I may have heard the term war dialing at some point, but the war driving was really the only one I knew, which is kind of the drive around and look for open Wi-Fi equivalent yeah. of, of the war dialing in this. But yeah, like <laughs> finding out that the, the essentially, Colloquially, it was renamed to war dialing because of this movie is crazy. Defcon, the hacker con- convention, yeah. is named Defcon because of this movie. Yes, like it, it, it's some very influential stuff. Kevin Mitnick said that he spent a year in solitary because a prosecutor told a judge that if he got access to a telephone, he could dial up NORAD and launch a nuke. Uh, Mitnick laughed in the courtroom. The judge believed, it and he spent a year in the hole. Oops. Right. Um, uh, the, um, the classic, very haunting strategy game, Defcon. Yeah. 2006. Have you ever played it? Yeah. It's fantastic. The, the introversion classic, like it's basically a video game version of the NORAD scene. He, he said he wanted to make the NORAD. They said they wanted to make the NORAD game. Yeah. Uh, like it's yeah. everywhere. I mean, I, you know, I, I, like I, like I said, I, I knew the, you know, the only winning move is not to play a line very well, of course, yeah. coming into this. Um, yeah, like the, the the influential nature of this thing is kind of crazy. Um, Cap, just just to be clear, John Draper, who was known as Captain Crunch, the guy who figured out that you could use the twenty six hundred hertz whistle that came in Captain Crunch boxes to to bypass paying for phone calls, um, yeah. is is attributed in a two thousand eight Wired retrospective, and he he literally says, "I called that scanning before the movie." Um, it's called war dialing now because David Lightman used it in the movie to make contact with the <laughs> NORAD computer. Yeah. That's amazing. Some, some good freaking in this movie as well. Yeah. The, and, the and, soda and freaking cam, adjacent, the soda tab stuff. Um, was that the, that was the phone booth. That was part, the phone right? booth one. I don't know if that actually worked. I'm, I'm curious if you could short it out that way. Yeah. I wonder if that's one of those, like we had to fictionalize it just enough so people wouldn't just go out and do it. But then there's also, it's not a phone, but he kind of does the same thing acoustically with that, uh, that door keypad. Oh yeah. He records the touch tones of the keypad to, to figure out how to open the door. And then also hot wires it so that it'll no longer work when he goes out. It's, it's pretty good. Um, yeah. There's some, some crazy cameos from people who were relatively new actors in this movie. Uh, John Spencer was Jerry in the missile silo. He played the chief of staff on the West wing and um, uh, a bunch of other stuff over the years. Um, the, uh, the captain or the admiral in charge of Tom Cruise's aircraft carrier in Top Gun is the F is one of the FBI agents. Okay. There were a couple other people that I recognized that I didn't actually, I, I didn't get down oh, to look up. That's the, the guy you're talking about is the, is also the principal from back to yes, the future. Also the, all, his name is James Tolkien. 
um, was also the principal from back to the, all three back to the futures or he's the marshal in the third one. I think there's another actor in this who it is killing me. Maybe somebody can help me out here. I don't know his name. He is one of the, he's a military officer that I think only has like one speaking scene or shot even. Yeah. Who he, I'm positive is a teacher or a principal from some sitcom or something. His voice is incredibly familiar. He basically has like one line where he's on the phone talking to somebody. I cannot find he's it. He's an Air movie. Force officer headset. I, that's the other one I was thinking. That's the other thing I was thinking. The other person I was thinking about. Uh, apparently John Lennon was originally, they originally wanted to get John Lennon to be Dr. Faulkner. But he he uh, was shot before that yeah, happened. Unfortunately, yeah, that was that was kind of crazy to find out. Um, uh, Jason Bernard, who was in like a ton of stuff, liar liar. He's been a character actor in a bazillion things, um, and was also in Wing Commander for the Price of Freedom as Captain William Eisen and Heart of the Tiger, mm-hmm. the video ones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he shows up all over all over this. It's it's a it's a Pretty remarkable. Yeah, it's a great, great cast. Early 80s cast. I glossed over Ali Sheedy in the credits at the beginning and then spent the entire movie not realizing that Jennifer is Ali Sheedy because I 98% know her from The Breakfast Club. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. Where that's she plays the, such a different character. Very much so. Super did not even make the connection until the end credits. It's, uh, it's when they do talk about how old the scientist was when he died. And they say, yeah, oh, he's 41. Oh, that is really old. I was like, oh, man, I'm just going to collapse uh, into dust over here. I, I mean, yes. But, I know. you know, also they're, they're, they're dumb teenagers. When you're 16 years old, 40 is incredibly old. 41 sounds like you might as well be dead. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think Matthew Broderick is, is a fantastic choice in this movie. Yeah. Like, because he plays the, the energetic, talented loner type kid quite quite well, but you get little glimpses of his sort of impish Ferris Bueller appeal well, but, coming out but he's here al- and there. He's also really kind of introspective when, when like, the, like yeah. there's some heavy scenes in this movie when they, when they go to Faulkner's and Faulkner, it basically is like, yeah, you know, the dinosaurs got wiped out and it all worked out after that. Maybe our turn is up. And, uh, and uh, Matthew Broderick does the impassioned speech to convince him that he should help them save the world. And then they're like, well, fuck this guy and go look for a boat and end up making out on the beach because like, he's like, I just wanted, I don't know how to swim. I thought there'd be more time to learn how to swim. It's, it's a yeah. surprisingly like, yeah, like, like the idea, Dark, the, fatalistic kind of, yeah. The, well, bit. And the idea that you'd rather not know, like the, he's like, I wish I didn't know. I wish it was like everybody else out there that didn't know the world was going to end in seven hours. Yeah. A- and it, it's funny. Cause that actually like, they did, I don't think they realized that this was a thing that had happened at the time the script was written. But in 1979, there was a simulation that got fed into the, they, before the 1980, they used to run the simulations on the actual hardware you used to launch the nukes. Which seems like probably a bad idea in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, somebody's fed a simulation into the network and almost started World War III in 1979. The national security advisor was on the phone and authorizing second strike capability and the whole thing. They hadn't gotten to the point that they woke up the president yet, but like he, he, and he was reported as saying, Hey, I didn't even bother waking up my wife. Cause I figured she'd rather not know that she had nine minutes to live. That's and, heavy. And yeah. Like <laughs> it's, it's, it's intense. That's, it's an intense that's pretty movie. heavy. And also I'm gl- I'm glad to hear you describe that because like, it's, it's not a, I, I don't, I don't, I don't hold this against the movie, but one of the aspects that really does, sort of make you it forces you to suspend your disbelief a little more than usual is the part where everybody in NORAD 
just keeps going along with this data and never questioning, even after they've known that they've gotten bad simulation data once. Oh, th- they still spend half the movie continuing to consume that bad data and believe that it's real. Like at some point you're just sort of like, come on, like would they really not figure out that this is all like vaporware? So, it, uh, but the, but then hearing that that happened in real life kind of, it's like, you know what? Okay. Yes. Reality actually is that ridiculous. If you want to not sleep for a few nights, go read the number of times that we almost, we had near oh, yes. misses with the, both the Russia oh, yeah. bo- on both sides, Russia. Like there was one, there was one that was like a 1980 or 81 where some kid in a missile silo had the launch order and he had a bad feeling about it. So he didn't do it. Right. Like, like, huh. like the opening oh. where 20% of the, of the people in the silos wouldn't turn their keys. Cause they didn't think it was, they didn't think it was, they wanted to be sure is, is a, is a real thing that was a real problem, which is one of the reasons they justified having massive, like over, over building of nuclear missiles. So anyway. Yeah. I mean, the same thing happened in the Soviet union, like right after this movie came out, like the, the famous, the famous dead hand incident. Yeah. Where, where the, again, the launch officer basically like kind of refused to go through procedure out of, out of skepticism about how valid the order was. And it turned out in fact, not to be valid. Well, and then, and then again, at the end of the movie, when, um, when the general, uh, general Berenger, I think is his name is the character's name. Uh, like they, they, they realized it was a simulation. They pull everything. They pull the bombers back. They pull the submarines back. But, but that, by that point, Whopper had already been connected to the silos and the, the computer is intent on firing the missiles. And he's like, well, shit, I got to call the president and tell him we might have to go through with this thing anyway. And it's, it's very reminiscent of Dr. Strangelove, which is, which is like the, like the, 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 the template for this side of the movie, the nuclear side of the movie kind of. It's another movie I've not seen. Yeah, oh, good God. I know Dr. Strangelove is real good. Like, I, I guess my point is people get in when people, when you're in a situation where people are told what to do, a lot of times people just do it. Right. That's, that's the, you know, Stanford prison experiment. I always get that mixed up with the other one that was bad that they did at Stanford. But anyway, like pe- people will follow orders, even yes, if they're that, bad. That is the one. Yeah. That's the infamous one where people become like awful authoritarians as soon as they are handed any amount of power. If there's one thing to make you pause and not just go through with the thing that you're being told to do, it's the knowledge that tens of millions or more people are going to die when you turn the key. Well, yeah. John Spencer in the missile silo gets the good line. It's, it's like, I want somebody on the goddamn phone before I kill 21 people. Who's the silo commander. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, that's, that is, that is like, that has come up. So many, it comes up in crimson tide. It was the exact same line. Like the, the um, uh, 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 what's his name uh, from French connection and Lex Luthor, the first Lex Luthor, uh, Gene Hackman, Gene Hackman, Tells Denzel Washington, turn your keys, sir, while he's pointing a gun at it. But it's the exact same scene. It's very good. Right. Yes. Um, yeah, we 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 watched Crimson Tide last year for the watch cast. And watching that was a good primer for this because I saw the whole, you know, order comes in. You got to like snap the card in half, yep. like turn keys at the same time, authenticate codes, the whole thing. So a um, couple of interesting things. I didn't the, the writers actually went to NORAD and took the tour. Um, and met the general in charge of NORAD who found out what they were making the movie about. He gave him, they gave him the gist, which is like a computer takes control of the missiles and goes crazy. And he was like, ah, I sleep much better at night knowing I'm in charge of this instead of some <laughs> damned computers. Sure. Um, and they, they got pretty good access. Now it was nothing was actually shot at NORAD. The set they made, they shot the exteriors in New Halem, Washington in an old gravel pit, like the tunnel. They, they made the tunnel. Oh, that tunnel's great. So it's interesting because I couldn't tell if the tunnel 
looks like the NORAD tunnel or if a lot of NORAD tunnel pictures on the internet actually just use this shot from war games. Um, real NORADs in Cheyenne Mountain, Colorado, um, the first place to get nuked in the, in the world should the Russians decide to attack us. Um, I think it's, oh, it isn't, isn't the whole idea that it's like hardened enough or underground enough to survive. It was hardened enough or underground enough to survive dropped bombs, but not 30 ICBM shots hitting it back to back. Sure. Yeah, sure. Um, like that, the, the, the lesson of the ICBM era is that nothing is hard enough to survive ICBMs because there's so many warheads that you just, you drop three or four at a time and it works anyway. Grim. Yeah. Uh, but the set's incredible. The set that they built for this is incredible. They have the big, like all the way from like the big springs hanging from the columns to the floors isolated from vibrations, the huge screens, all the like fifties style power plant looking control panels um, were all built for this movie. They won a technical Oscar, right? For the, for the screens, I think. Yeah. It's the, there's a little bit on Wikipedia about how they did the screens in the center. Those were all live while the actors were shooting. So like there's no special effects on those screens. Oh, wow. I didn't know that they were, they were using like newer super bright screens with they're projecting from behind onto these super bright screens that were bright enough for the camera to just capture what was on the screen. Oh, that's awesome. So, so the actors actually had something to react to Colin Cantwell of star Wars fame. What? Uh, the guy who did a lot of the original models for uh, the design models for star Wars, not Mm -hmm. the, the final shooting models, but he did all the graphics. He did all of the nuclear computer display stuff in this. Oh, on uh, on uh, that's that's why the HP ninety eight forty five C came in, right? Are you familiar with that computer? Because I looked that up was as I was reading about this, and it looks amazing. <laughs> the it did, well, yeah, it's a, it's like a desktop computer. It looks like are those tape decks on there? It almost like I can't tell. Yeah, the, the computer that he did the war game stuff on the HP 9845C, it is a desktop computer, at least this picture on Wikipedia. It is a, a personal computer. But Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was a $39,000 computer for wow. what it's worth. Jeez. Holy cow. It does not look that expensive, but sure. Um, it's beige. It took, it took one minute to render each frame of the, That's pretty good. Of the graphics. Uh they had 50,000 feet of negatives of, of, of those of the computer graphics. Wow. Uh, and then, yeah, like I said, they, they 16 millimeter projected from behind, like rear projected onto those big screens. And then it works like they, they look quite good. They look like they're, it looks like it's actually happening in there. So, so it looked so good that the generals in charge of NORAD saw the movie and they were like, Hey, we got to upgrade our stuff. If it can look <laughs> like this in the movies, we can make it look like this in real life. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and then they, they uh, they upgraded the the entire war room in real life. Apparently, yeah. as a result, of the movie everything about the look of this movie is amazing. Like the the NORAD stuff looks suitably like retro futuristic, and they handled the graphics really well. There's also this is just a me thing. There's also the aspect of like I entered public school right around the time this movie came out. Mm-hmm. So all of the corduroys and like like that that scene in that diner or the arcade where you know like the the brown tables and trays and everything's brown you know everything yep. just looks this is like such a nostalgia thing for me all the fashion high waisted khaki pants yep. the yep. yeah the stripes his green striped collared shirt it's all so eighties um, and all the stuff in his room you know I mean that that inside we've talked about this before that inside eighty eighty is practically a like fetish object of early computing at this point to the point that you can buy, like you can build repro kits of that thing. Now, if you want to have one of those sitting on your shelf, 
Yeah, it was um, a, that was an early 8086 processor PC. I mean, it yeah. wasn't that early at that point, I guess. But um, they they ran CPM. There, there's a there's a CIO.com article about the technology of war games. It's really good. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, but uh, like they used an MSI IKB one keyboard that was programmable because Matthew Broderick couldn't type. Oh, so they would program in the sequences that he was typing into the computer as keyboard shortcuts. And then the computer, the keyboard would jam them into the key, into the computer. Interesting. They didn't actually use that computer to generate the shots on the screen. Uh, that computer that they used to generate the on-screen shots was a CompuPro system eight dash eight, eight slash 16 which was another 8086 PC that ran CPM as well. And I assume that's because they probably didn't want to have fans on on the set so they could get audio. So they probably piped that in from, from elsewhere. Um, Yeah. What else, what else does he have going on in his room here? Eight inch floppy disk. Yeah. It's like 15 grand worth of hardware. Easy. Probably more when I, when I I realized what that HP cost. Yes. Um, The eight inch floppy disk. I never actually saw an eight inch floppy disk in person other than like a display. I don't think. Um, ironically, weren't those weren't eight inch, inches also used in the nuclear command and control until recently, until yeah. very recently, like yeah. just within the last few years. Yeah. Well, the bits are big enough that cosmic radiation won't uh, flip them. Apparently. Yes. Uh, can we talk about the modem? Yes. I'm looking at it right now. It's also, it is, is that the modem on top of his monitor? It is right. Yeah, The modem's on top of okay, his monitor. Yeah. Uh, the, the, I think uh, Ali Shidi puts the vocoder box on top of the modem at some point. You get a pretty good look at it, but it has all the switches to configure your configure your uh you know there's no there's no at commands to set baud rates and stuff like that at that point you control it with dip switches inside or or the big switches on the front yeah the uh, switches switches on the front are labeled like al st rdl dl hs yeah it was a servitech 212a is the actual modem that was on the on the set the the they rebadged it in MSA, i think because they wanted people to understand that they all work together i don't know um, it was a 1200 baud modem. Could also be that they had like, you know, rights to show the MSI name and not the other company. So we're like, Hey, let's just get the most out of this. Yeah, that's, that's possible. I, I like, it's, it's a weird thing. It also, they also used an acoustic coupler, which I assume yes. is because they wanted people to understand that the computer was using phone lines. So they okay. put the phone thing on the acoustic coupler, even though it wasn't actually necessary for that modem. It could, it could plug in directly to the phone line. Yeah. So I had never seen an acoustic coupler before and did not know that's what this was until <laughs> I asked you. And like, yeah, is there a scenario like what he's doing where it would have been required? Yeah. So bef- there, bef- there was a period of time where the only way to connect a modem to a computer was by cupping, by, by connecting a speaker and a microphone to the speaker and microphone. That, that the microphone and speaker of the headset. That seems very subject to interference. Like somebody's hollering too close to the coupler. Well, yeah. Or, or somebody's, you, you know, somebody's mowing the yard right outside or something. It seems like it would be rough to yeah, maintain or, a good connection. Or like, you, you know, I guess you have to remember at that point, Bell was still selling every phones and you weren't allowed to hook up non-licensed phones to the oh, network. Really? But yeah. Oh, wow. Or I guess they were leasing people phones. I don't think you'd even buy them. But, I, but, um, I didn't know that was ever a thing. Oh yeah. That's one of the reasons they got, that's what, that's one of the reasons they got split up is because huh. they wouldn't let people connect. Like the, the government forced them to let other people connect licensed, but not hardware that they sold. Um, but like you had to have the right shape phone to hook up to the coupler. You, you could also get ones that would clip on that would kind of like bungee around the, the, the top as two separate pieces. I guess if you had a princess phone or something, but, um, it, it, I never, I don't think I ever actually, I've seen acoustic couplers, but never, never had to use one. I was well after that. I, I think the first modem I had was a 2400 baud modem probably. 
Um, but yeah, that there's, there's some other stuff in that, in that shot. It's an expensive bedroom. He's a dot matrix printer and, and just prints an incredible amount of paper paper. Um, uh, the, the vocoder is really interesting because I like that seems like it was completely faked in the movie. I don't know. Um, vocoders were another thing that you like read about in magazines and nobody ever actually had because it was kind of useless. Um, but it, but it, it, it like in terms of giving the computer a voice and making Whopper the computer that's going to destroy the world, a character in the movie, it, the vocoder is absolutely vital. Oh yeah. It, it lets them have conversations with the computer yes. and, and not just, you know, as, as you know, Brad, there's nothing more boring than a shot of somebody sitting on a computer typing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so. and they, they do the same thing with the actors. It's yeah, it's all, it's all just in service to making the movie work. You know, they have Lightman and Falcon both when they are typing to Whopper are sitting, <laughs> are sitting there reading out everything they're typing as they type it. Right. As, yeah. as if, as if there is actual dialogue between a human and a computer out loud. Uh, uh, they had, they had a bunch of, of actual kids who were like what we would call now hacking. It wasn't really a name for it. then. um, there's a guy, a guy named David Scott Lewis, who was the, well, I think he claims he was the model for David Lightman. He was just one of the people that they talked to. Um, they, uh, like they, they based the character of Lightman on a bunch of different people. It kind of seemed like, um, which, which makes sense. You know, like it's a, it's a, they, but they talked to Captain Crunch. They talked to Mitnick later, I guess. I don't know. Um, they, they got a lot of the hardware from a guy named Todd Fisher. Um, uh, who was, I, I assume active at the time. I, I don't, I couldn't find out a whole lot about him. He's a little, he's a little quiet these days. The bedroom hardware, you mean? Hmm. The, yeah, the bedroom, bedroom hardware, hardware? The, oh, the MSI and, and the floppy disk and all that stuff came from him, I believe. Oh, that's interesting. You always just, I always just kind of assume like, oh, they just bought all that stuff. Like they just, it just came out of the budget, but no. No, you, like you, you, for that kind of stuff, especially like you're, you're probably paying people to be consultants on the film. Sure. So they're providing the hardware as part of that consultancy and probably yeah. also like writing the code. Like some, I assume that one of the, one of the computer guys figured out that they could program the keyboard to, to, to get over Broderick's inability to type and like the, the, the computer consultants would have told them, Hey, like nobody's going to have just a single login. You have to have a password and stuff like that too, but your, your whatever. But you know, then they, they bypass that just for instance, just so the movie flows. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that's probably the other thing up there with the thing I mentioned earlier about NORAD, like kind of uncritically believing all the simulation data they're getting. Yeah. Um, the kind of ease with which he just logs into everything in the world well, is a little ridiculous, but it's like, it totally makes the movie work. Right. But, but also like Mitnick is quoted talking about this film and saying that's the way it was in the early days. That's, that's like, fair. There, there was a period of time early on when people would just plug a modem into their computer and not realize that it would pick up the phone when people called that number. Right. right. Yeah. And, and so depending on what OS you were running, you would just have full access to the machine with the moment you logged in. Cause it just shows up like a terminal. Um, there's a couple of good scenes that the arcade machine is. I love that Galaga is his favorite game. Yeah. This is clearly the best of that era of arcade game. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Um, um, and they actually, he's actually good at Galaga in the game. Like yes. he hits the challenging stage. He has two ships. He's like, uh, you know, they, they paid attention. The high score is a pretty good high score. Isn't there a Galaga 
sound effect somewhere else in this movie, like maybe in the nuclear system somewhere. I thought I, I'd swear I heard an arcade sound. I, I thought there was a dun, uh, the like dun, 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 dun. the the dying ship sound, like yeah, or, or the or the extra life sound, one or the other. Yeah, I can't remember where that is. Maybe somebody can help us out. The uh, the uh, the fact that the fact that at one point the general is like, I want to talk to the people that are going to get hit by the bombs first. Get them on the horn for me. And like he gets the first two people are generals and the third guy is like a is like a squeaky voiced is like the Simpsons teenage teenage yes. kid working at the fast food place. He's like, yep. oh, yeah, sir. <laughs> no, the, the CEO's not here yet. It's, it, uh, and and he smiles and like calms him down. Airman, Airman Darty is my maybe my favorite character, favorite big character in the movie. Yes. for sure. Yeah. Um, I was surprised that Lightman's kind of hacker friends weren't to play a bigger role in the story. They just have that one scene. Well, is but, to. But, He's got oh, the, um, he's got, not, the, he's got Belvin is one of the guys right. named Jim like and the, Belvin. Like, I think speaking of classic archetypes, you've got the slovenly nerd and the extremely uptight, like rude, socially awkward nerd, high strung, probably on the spectrum. Hey, you told me to tell you when you were being annoying. I'm telling you, you're being annoying now. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a remarkable, uh, that guy played a bunch of nerds. Uh, the guy who played Belvin, which I assume is that they started with Melvin and they needed to make the name nerdier. Um, but he, he played a bunch of nerds in the eighties and then did a bunch of voice work. He played, um, uh, most notably he played, uh, Dexter's nemesis on Dexter's laboratory for the entire run of that show. Um, and then it started showing up in, in like indie movies lately. Um, it's, it's, it's like the, 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 the role of Falcon, like the, the surprise reveal that Falcon's alive midway yes. through the movie, the, the, the way these kids are moving around the world. Like the, like the fact that high school kids are able to go get to get from Cheyenne mountain in Colorado back to Portland, but just by booking a plane ticket is kind of amazing. Cause I don't, I don't think you, I don't, I think you'd have a hard time flying as a six, 15 or 16 year old now. Um, Not if you're David Lightman and you can just log into Panham's reservation true. system. It's true. Get yourself a reservation. Um, um, yeah. The, that, that, the, the reveal that he is alive is like an amazing shot in the arm for this movie. Cause I did not see that coming at all. No. Um, and like that, that's what makes this thing work is that it's just got a lot of, a lot of like well executed classic movie stuff in it. Right. You know, like, even before that, when he is, there's kind of the detective montage almost of him tracking down everything he can find about Falcon. Yeah, he's he's like going to microfish libraries yes. using microfish and like the like the breadcrumb trail of you know I think that's what his hacker friends tell him right is they put him on to like oh well there's a game in here called Falcon's Maze maybe your next step should be find out everything you can about this Falcon character and then it's like a, a good little detective thing um, and then yes that that culminates later like right at the moment when the movie could use a little more drama or need something to move it forward. He sleuths his way into finding that, Oh my God, this, this like famous computer programmer scientist guy is still alive. Yeah, the, the tragic figure at the heart of the story. Um, the, the other thing you hit this there, just like with sneakers, the real life hacking stuff is depicted really well. The phone freaking stuff, the, the using research about a person to figure out what their password is, the social engineering, to get when he when he's when he's in the principal's office and he's like, oh, I know where the people where they store the passwords for the school grades computer pulls out the, the little writing desk. And there's the 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 classic list of oh, here's all of the old passwords scratched out. Mm -hmm. um, 
the, the grade the grade changing thing also I'm sure like was amazing at the time like like there was real fear yeah yeah like the second I saw he was failing a class in this I immediately knew like of course he's gonna hack into the school and change his grade like because it's such a huge trope now but I'm sure at the time people were like oh my god I didn't know anybody who did that I don't think like did that is there a documented case of that happening I, I wonder if it's like D and D and Satanism, right? Yeah. It's like, it is practically full on urban legend at this point that people used to do that. And I wonder if that ever actually happened in a recorded way. Well, there's a, there's a, um, there's a case in 2022 of a principal changing students grades for years. Interesting. Um, yeah. That's not exactly what we're looking for here, but, but somewhat, also the, different motivation, the, but yeah using the touch tones, recording the touch tones and you know, yeah, like, like the scene where he's looking around the, the nurses, the exam room to find something he can use to get, to get to free himself is, yeah. is, and, and like also how he socially engineers his way onto the bus, onto the tour bus and yes. the whole thing like that, that tour bus experience was straight from when the two writers Lasker and, and, um, and, uh, uh, um, uh, Walter Parks, uh, Lawrence Lasker and Walter Parks went on the, the NORAD tour. Um, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a absolutely fascinating, fascinating look at what hacking was like before we called hackers hackers and before they were, you know, this was before Mitnick, this was before Mitnick right. was vilified as destroying the fabric of society using computers and, and, a, such a threat. He has to be isolated from all technology. I know I kind of called out a couple aspects of this that maybe strain uh, credulity a little bit, but like in general, there is nothing technical in this movie that really seems truly implausible. Like everything Whopper. Well, even that, but even now, like I said, like now the idea of a computer that learns that is fed a bunch of data and learns from it through iteration and then is put in charge of things it shouldn't be in charge of. Well, it seems pretty plausible. It just took 40 years for Whopper to catch up. At the time, Whopper was just a big box oh, yeah. designed to look like a furnace with a guy sitting inside using working an Apple II. Yeah, I, I, yes, that's that's amazing that Whopper is driven. All the lights in Whopper are driven by an Apple II, and there's somebody in there doing that live while they're yeah, shooting the, it. But the guy, the guy inside was Mike Fink, who's a special effects supervisor, and he was driving that that uh, that that the panel with yeah. the Apple II. Yeah, but just just in general, you know, his use of computers, his hacking into remote systems, the the all the, the foibles in the nuclear system you name it like anything technical in this movie is at least plausible enough to watch and enjoy the movie it's all handled with at least a, a decent amount of savvy you know well and also so i guess really if we want to get down to it the lasting the 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 biggest lasting impact of this film is that it kind of birthed the modern computer computer security like there, there were people there were people who were concerned about computer security for for a good decade two decades before this happened from the dawn of ARPANET. Right. But, um, most, uh, most notably the a guy named Willis Ware, who wrote a paper called security and privacy and computer systems in, in the sixties, in the late sixties. Um, but this drew attention to it to the point that after a screening at, at Camp David, Reagan was like, Hey, is this possible in a, in the meeting about nuclear proliferation the next week and tasked a general, uh, John Vesey, to who's the chairman of joint chiefs of staff to find out if it could really happen. He went back, looked at the research people had been doing. and was like, yeah, this is, this is probably as much worse than you think. Primarily based on the fact that the NSA had been doing it to Russia and China for a decade at that point. So, um, 
you know, it, like this, this spawned a national security directive called NSDD 145, which was the national policy on telecommunications and automated information security systems, which basically said, Hey, if you're buying stuff for the government, you have to have somebody secure this. He tried to get the NSA to do that work uh, rather than the the, the CIA or FBI or, or whatever, because there was no agency for that at the time. It ended up getting changed later on because the NSA is not supposed to work in the United States. Um, oh, I ha, know that. <laughs> yeah. NSA and CIA aren't supposed to do work in the U.S. The, some stuff changed after 9-11, Brad. Well, do you mean like geographically? Like, I'm sure the not not on American citizens thing is is part of the mission statement. But is that like literally can't do work in the borders of the country? No, no, no. They can. They can, They're not supposed to do. Um, they're not supposed to like. They're not supposed to do counter terror. Like the CIA, the FBI is supposed to handle counter terrorist and counter intel and stuff like that inside the United States. The CIA and the NSA are supposed to do signals and uh, work outside and signals and oh, interesting intelligence outside. Then it's. NSA was not allowed to spy on American citizens until they got the metadata loophole yeah, in yeah. the 2000s. Yeah, I, I knew that. I meant more like, you know, there obviously there are like spies, foreign operatives in the country. That So that, that is an FBI thing. That's an FBI thing. It was, but, I mean, now, it's all, now it's all under Homeland Security. So like the distinctions are a little wobblier is my understanding. I don't know if that's correct or not. Um, but yeah, so. So, yeah, they they but it, it did that like that. Reagan watching this movie because Lawrence Lasker grew up, his parents were Hollywood people and Reagan came to cocktail parties at their house. So he was able to get a screening of the film at the, at Camp David resulted in the U S government taking cyber security uh, seriously before there were really laptops on the market. That's that's ridiculous. Like just the, the life imitating art aspect of that is completely absurd. Um, the picture of Reagan in this threw me for a loop because so many movies fictionalize the president and cast an actor. Oh, but it was, he was just on the wall in the back of the office, the FBI office or whatever. Yeah, right. Yes. So for, for the president canonically in this movie to just be Reagan really like kind of hit me over the head, but also like Reagan is so associated with this era of nuclear fear that that feels very appropriate. Yep. Yep. Um, so yeah, I think that's it. That's that's yeah. that's yeah. the well, we could talk through talk through the, the the final sequence. I think is probably where to end this. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good just call. just it. You know, it it may be a little long, but it is very tense. Well, it has it has some real ups and downs. Like the yes. hey hey, we told we figured out it's a simulation. We're all safe. Oh wait, what are those numbers? Bit is is, is pretty remarkable. Yeah, but the, like the 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 kind of I mean, you know, everything's fine, but still the tension of. These missiles are impacting in 20 seconds. We have a bunch of these bases on the line. Like what's going to happen? Are are all these people going to die? Like you still, you still feel the fear and the tension in in the room, even knowing that none of this is actually going to result in mass death. Right? Yeah. It's, it's intense. Barry Corbin's performance as the general here is really interesting because he's, he's like Barry Corbin's folksy and, and, and genial. Oh my God. Like the absolute archetype of the like cigar chomping Texas good old boy military official or cop or whatever. Yeah. Well, and and like the counterpoint between, hey, we might have just killed everybody on the planet. And I'm talking to that private in in Alaska about whether he's whether he's been nuked yet or not is a real like it's it's a it's a real hard line to ride. I think like if he, if Barry Corbin doesn't play that exactly right, it doesn't work in any way at all. And, and I love, I love like how he kind of 
like the the hard swings that his character has from celebrating yes. that we've we've made it to hey you should pick up the phone uh, general and then well shit it looks like we're going to have to go through with this anyway even though it's a mistake is is a uh, is 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 incredible yeah i i was shocked how likable he turns out or that character turns out to be by the end which i think is a testament both to his performance and also to the script because the cliche would be and you expect this early on the cliche would be that the the general, the military guy is the asshole warmonger who doesn't care if everybody dies and is pushing for some very risky or immoral action or, or policy. Right. And the and the Dabney Coleman character, the scientist, is the mm-hmm. guy who's like knows the truth and has it right and is the moral character and is pushing for the correct course of action. You know what I mean? And like by the end, it's kind of revealed to be the opposite. Right. That like the, the military dude who thought humans should be in charge of this stuff was right all along. And the scientist guy is kind of the asshole for pushing for automating this system that should never be automated. It's 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 um the, like the, like there's no antagonist in this movie. The antagonist is yeah. the state of the world. Yes, yes, right? the, yes. The the antagonist is the the looming threat of mutually assured destruction. And they keep setting up. They do a really incredible job with the script where they set up antagonists or pr- what you presume is going to be the antagonist. You know, it's it's the scientist who it's the it's the general who is in charge of the nukes. It's the computer guy who wants to automate everything. It's the, it's the, uh, the scientist who's checked out and thinks we we need another mass extinction to write, write planet earth. And it's Whopper, right? It's the computer itself. Like there, there's a, there's a version of this movie where the computer is trying to kill is homicidal versus apathetic and just trying to do its programming. That is a shit movie. It's a really terrible movie. Yeah. There's a version of this where Barry Corbin's character is terror is a, is a, is a warmonger. There's a version of it where the computer guy does an eagle, does a bad hack to, you know, cuts a corner and, and causes the destruction of the planet. Um, it, it, it's, it's really, it's really quite a beautiful script. Yeah. There's, I guess there, there really isn't a truly villainous character in this movie. Right? No, I mean like, like Barry Corbin, like, when he's presented with pretty good evidence, re- reasonable evidence that it's all a false alarm, he backs down immediately. He's like, well, right. okay, we can still afford, we can still annihilate the hell out of them. If we, if we wait and see if the missiles hit first. Yes. Right? Like, we don't have to launch before the missiles are supposed to start hitting. Yeah. Like, like the Gene Hackman character in Crimson Tide again is, is the villainous version of the general in this because he wants to launch at all costs, even with like very good evidence or at least reason for skepticism that they are not in fact supposed to launch. And well, like even, you know, even the general in this, the guy who would be the warmonger here, like very, very much wants to avoid launching missiles. I Like the Gene Hackman character in Crimson Tide is really tough because like I, I look at that. It's been a long time since I watched that movie, but I remember that being a a here's a person who's been shaped by this awful job he's been faced with for the for the entirety of his career. You know, he's he spent his entire career saying, yes, I can do this awful thing and kill millions of people if it comes down to it. And when he's presented with that situation, he he's so locked in by his preconditioning that he has, he can't get out of it. I think that's a pretty good read on that character. And, and on top of that, he is an authoritarian and resents having his, his orders challenged. And yeah, I think well, there's a racial component to it too. If yes, I remember right. Yes, there definitely is. Uh, but like, I, I think part of it is he wants to go through with the launch out of spite because he doesn't want to be wrong. Yes. He doesn't want to be wrong. And he's, he's angry about anyone in his crew undermining his his orders um cognitive dissonance real nightmare nobody nobody like that character in this movie everybody is is redeeming in some fashion yeah 
Um, yeah, even even Kittrick, who's like the shitty programmer who comes up with the whole idea to hook the computers up to the to the the turrets and is and is like clearly just worried about the impact of this failure on his career. Like there's a shot when when Corbin's like, I gotta call the president and tell him what's going on. And he looks at him like, What are you gonna tell him? He's like, I'm gonna tell him what's happening. Um, it's 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 uh like maybe he's the bat maybe he's the antagonist. I I don't know. It's like I, I think it's I think it's a pretty remarkable 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 film i also yeah. the other performance i wanted to call out is ali sheedy does as as she said in an interview about this 20 years later as i i was really good at asking questions in this movie because i didn't have any idea what any of it meant because <laughs> nobody knew anything about computers at the time sure um so she she does the heavy lifting of exposition to explain by asking questions of Matthew Broderick to explain, to ask questions about computers and connecting to networks and modems and like how you, how you do these things and all of the stuff that like, like at one point, I think during the the grades hacking sequence, she says, is this real? And he's like, yeah, of course it's real. It's in the computer. And like, it's, it's, that was an entirely new concept for people at this time. It's making me realize this movie probably was a tremendous number of people's first exposure to computers of any kind. Right. I don't, I don't think we, did we mention earlier the house financially successful this was, it was the fifth highest grossing movie of the year. It made $80 million us, which was in the U S market off of a $16 million budget, which is a lot then. Like it was seen by a lot of people at the time. And I bet, I bet the vast majority of those people had never touched or even been in the room with a computer. No, no. I mean, at the time this, this movie this movie introduced a lot of people to the idea that computers could do amazing things. And, but, but I bet people, my assumption is people were going this because it was a cold war nuclear Holocaust thriller where yeah. the good guys, where, where the nuclear war lost. Maybe the nuclear war is the, is the antagonist when, yes. I, get, when I think it, about it. Anyway, it, it absolutely is. Uh, and yeah, I, anyway, this, this final sequence, even, even knowing what was coming, I didn't know specifically that the tic-tac-toe thing was going to happen necessarily. But I, you know, I knew at the end the computer was going to reject the idea of playing the game in the first place. Still, how they get there, I think, is like visually incredibly striking. Like, yeah, getting getting the tic-tac-toe up on the screen and having seeing that iterate faster and faster and then transitioning to doing that with 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 the uh, first strike scenarios, like watching it go through all those different nuclear plans, seeing the winner, none, winner, none, winner, none over and over Ever like that's it's it's like kind of poignant, honestly, like the way that it's executed. <laughs> you do get the ridiculous Hollywood thing where a bunch of the computer panels blow up for a reason. At some <laughs> well, point. you know, he's using all the available power, Brad. Yeah, of, of course, you know, if you look, I've, I've seen enough Star Trek. If you have computer panels on your set, you have to blow some of them. Yeah, up. it's Chekhov's, Chekhov's computer um, panel is, is in full effect. The, the thing about that, that sequence is the um, is the the. My favorite part about that is the scrolling list of names of the different gambits. Yes. And I didn't actually take the time to go up and look and see if like the Venezuelan gambit was a real thing <laughs> yeah. or if it was, if it was something that the writers made up. Cause, cause some of them were pretty funny. There was like, like far East strategy. I'm trying to scroll through here. I, I believe I saw in India, Pakistan. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, scenario in there, Hong Kong variants. Oh, get out of the way guy. Somebody's standing in front of the screen. <laughs> Uh, the Sudan. <laughs> okay. The Sudan surprise has got to be made yeah, up. For th- this these movie. have got to be fake, right? The Arg- Argentina escalation, the Iceland maximum. These, these all sound like Hitman episodes. They right? absolutely sound like yeah. Hitman levels or escalations or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. The Turkish heavy. I, I do like a Turkish heavy. Uh, Turkish delight. No, thank you. Turkish heavy. Yes, please. 
anyway, yeah, like, you know, I, I had kind of back into this from having played DEF CON 15 years ago or whatever, but like just those big ass screens of watching vector versions of nuclear strikes and the big giant circles as they impact and stuff like watching that play out faster and faster and faster is like super tense. And of course, the conclusion, the wrap up is like amazing. Oh, it's so good. It's yeah. DEF CON still works. Oh, it does. 2006. I started to download it right before this. I'm going to have to find out. I believe I'm going to, there's, I'm gonna, there's, I just downloaded it. Steam user reviews from like days ago. So I think probably it still does. Very positive in the last 30 days. Yeah, I'd say we're probably okay. Oh, last thing. I guess this is the last thing I'll say. Like you, like you said, DEF CON, the hacker convention is named from this movie. I never knew what DEF CON meant until this movie. It means, oh, really? def- it means defense condition. I knew, I knew what it stood for. Or I knew what like the, I knew what the purpose of the, the, the rating was. I just didn't know. I, knew, I never stopped to think like where the actual term came from. Defense condition. Wow. So, yeah. I read a lot of Tom Clancy books in high school, so I, I was pretty aware of DEF CON. Um, I think this is as good a place as any to wrap yeah. it up. War games. This movie rules. I, pretty, I'm yeah. shocked, honestly, that like it, you know, for as much hype and, and influence as this movie has had over time. Like I was shocked that it kind of surpassed my expectations just in terms of being a good movie as well as executing all the technical stuff quite well. Yeah. Have, having watched it every 15 years now, 20 years, it's, it's, um, it, it's amazing to me how much more relevant it was this time than the last time I watched it probably is, is the thing that struck me. There was definitely that lull posts like 91 for a good while where people were like, well, nuclear Armageddon's probably not going to happen now. Right. Now that, yeah. one of, now that one of the two superpowers is gone, probably be fine. Right. And then here we are. Well, but, but not just that, but the AI replacing, taking humans out yes. of control loops and stuff like that and, yes. and replacing it, computers, taking our gerbs and all that is, yes. is, uh, we're in a weird place. Yeah. Uh, we sure are. Work games, 1983, yes. still relevant. It turns yes. out quite a movie. Um, I, I'm impressed. Brad, we're here and we're able to do things like watch war games and talk about it for an hour because of a few thousand delightful human beings yeah. uh, who support our show via Patreon. Uh, so thank you, patrons. Thank you, human beings. Yes, we appreciate you. We will not take you out of the loop, uh, but we will uh, ask folks who like the show to support us by going to patreon.com slash techpod, where for five bucks a month, you too can get access to the techpod Patreon uh, the the fabulous TechPod Discord, the Patreon exclusive patron. You too can get access to the TechPod Discord, the fabulous patron episodes, which happen monthly. And if you want, you can get us to read your name every every month on the on the show, um, every week on the show, even. Uh, so thank you to all of our patrons, uh, but thank you especially to our executive producer, to your patrons, including Nick Johnston, Paddle Creek Games Makers of Fractured Vale, Andrew Slosky, Crimes, Comma Bunny. Just Wedge 3.0, Joel Krauska, Twinkie and the Argonauts, David Allen, and James Kamek. Thank you all so much. Uh, and I guess I guess that'll do it for us this week. Yeah, I'm excited to see what people have to say about this movie on the Discord now that I have seen it. Yeah, I am. I think we're also going to, uh, due to popular request, we are going to turn, We t- a few weeks ago, we turned the games channel into a forum on the Discord. Mm-hmm. So it's like a, so you can have like dedicated sub channels and sub conversations. And there's like, it's, it's weird. I don't know how I feel about it still, but people seem to like it. So we're going to do that to the movies channel as well. Um, so we can have individual areas for people to talk about Oppenheimer and Barbie. And I guess also war games this week. Yeah. Um, yeah. Get in there so I can talk to people about maybe finally actually buying one of those MSI 8080 replica kits. 
Ooh, that I've, I keep thinking about buying because it seems like the kind of thing that maybe won't get made forever and maybe I should get one because it looks amazing. But now that I've seen this movie, I have an actual reason to do so. Is there a Whopper kit? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's a significantly taller order, I think. Well, I don't want the full-size one, but I want, man... Yeah, Whopper missile code display. I was sad to read that they broke that thing down after the movie finished production. I like I know I know movie props don't last, so nobody wants to store that stuff, but that thing is so cool. Yeah, especially back then, people wouldn't have kept them. Yes. Um, but but this but this this eighty eighty. Well I guess that'll do it for us this week. We will yeah. see you all next week. Bye everybody. Mm-hmm.